0: welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about the 1946 film Humoresque. Joan Crawford plays a socialite tormented by her love for a younger man, played by John Garfield. He's a passionate violinist trying to break into the music world. Her money and connections help him find success, but her hard drinking and intense desire lead to her own self-destruction. I adore this film. I talk about the music in it, how it looks at desire, and much more. As always, there are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash films for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite art house streaming websites that I've loved for a few years now. It's called Ovid. That's O-V-I-D. The site is a partnership between several art house distributors, including Icarus Films and Women Make Movies. There's a wide variety of films in Ovid's catalog, from French thrillers to documentaries about history and the arts. One film they offer is Spencer Nasako's 1998 documentary Kelly Loves Tony which looks at the relationship between two young refugees from Laos trying to make their way in America. Another great film that Ovid offers is Meher Abi Samra's 2016 documentary, A Maid for Each. It's about the plight of domestic workers in Lebanon. Both of these films showcase how Ovid offers unique and intellectually stimulating films that you often can't find anywhere else. On the site, you can also watch films by some of the greatest directors of of our time, including Claire Denis and Patricio Guzman. I think those of you who enjoy my podcast would love Ovid. I know I do. You can use the code CINEMA to get your first month for free. Go to ovid.tv, that's ovi dtv to start watching. And in the show notes of this episode, you can find a link to my favorite films on the site. I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode all about humoresque. I watched this film for the first time, I had such a powerful and emotional experience with it that I didn't expect. I'm not quite sure why I watched it. I think I saw some images of it on Tumblr. I really, I think it's fascinating the process through which we find films or why we watch certain films. I know for me personally, I make lists of stuff that I want to watch. I even try to do like a short-term watch list where I'll have like 10 films on that list and those are the films that I really would like to watch soon because I have a long like never-ending list that's ridiculous with like hundreds and thousands of films on it and I try to pick somewhere I'm like you know what I want to see I want to see these films soon. So I will make lists like that to try to prioritize films, but I always inevitably veer from that list. I can just be scrolling on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and I can see an image from a film and I have to see it. Or I'll see a clip or a scene. I'll have to drop everything, (laughs) whatever I was planning on watching. And the funny thing is, is that I can have films that I've been wanting to see for years then I will drop everything for a film that I literally just found out about like within hours. (laughs) And I think that's a funny thing about being a cinephile is that we're not always conscious of why we're drawn to certain films. That's my process. Now some people make lists and they stick to those lists and that's why they watch a film is because it was on their list. For me, it's more of a gut thing It's more of, I feel drawn to a particular film for some reason. Maybe the images, maybe the trailer, maybe the description. It's not always clear to me. And I believe that Humoresque was streaming on Turner Classic Movies. I think I recorded it on my DVR. I'm pretty sure that I did. Or it was available for streaming on the Turner Classic Movies website. And that's how I ended up watching it. I think I had seen some images from of it on Tumblr. Specifically, what I remember is that I saw the ending scene, the last scene with Joan Crawford on the beach, walking on the beach. And I found those images to be incredibly evocative and they grabbed me. And so I watched Humoresque and I fell head over heels in love with this film. Whoever's listening to this episode... I feel like you're my people. I feel like humoresque. It was a big hit when it came out. It came out in 1946. It came out after Joan Crawford did Mildred Pierce. Uh, Mildred Pierce came out in 1945. It was directed by Michael Curtiz. She won an Oscar for her performance in Mildred Pierce and she won that Oscar while she was filming Humoresque. She actually didn't attend the ceremony. She said that she was sick but it could have been for attention or something like that. I don't even think she had been nominated until up to that point when she did Mildred Pierce. I talk all about Mildred Pierce in a separate episode, and I also talk about Joan Crawford more in depth in that episode. I talk about why I'm drawn to her, why I find her so interesting, and a lot of the things that draw me to her are also present in humoresque. I'm gonna be totally honest, I prefer humoresque to Mildred Pierce as much as I love Mildred Pierce. I mean, Mildred Pierce is like the mainstream film of the two. It's in the Criterion Collection, everybody knows about it, a lot of people are aware of it, and it's quite famous. Humoresque? If you bring up humoresque to people, nobody really knows what you're talking about. So I feel like those of you who are listening to this episode, either you watched the film because I'm doing this episode and you're like a long-time listener or a long-time follower of mine on social media, or you randomly came across this episode because you like humoresque. We are in the same club and you are my people. I deeply love this film and I have a feeling that the people who love this film are incredibly passionate about it. I don't know how you can't have really strong feelings about it after you watch it. I saw it in February a few months ago and as soon as I saw it, I knew. I knew I had to do an episode. I had to talk about it because I have so many emotions about the film. It makes you feel so much. This is my favorite Joan Crawford performance, hands down. I've seen about five or six Joan Crawford films. I still have quite a bit of her work to see, but I have seen The Women and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Mildred Pierce. Possessed. I want to see A Woman's Face. That one looks really good. I want to see Sudden Fear. There are still quite a few Joan Crawford films I would like to experience. She is perhaps my favorite classic Hollywood actress. I love Marilyn Monroe she's one of my favorites, and I love Judy Garland. I Honestly, I love all the classic Hollywood actresses. Audrey Hepburn, Katherine Hepburn, Natalie Wood, Betty Davis. Uh, like I said, Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe. It's hard to even choose. I love Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, there's no classic Hollywood actress where I'm like, no, I don't like her. I pretty much, I like Norma Shearer. I, I really like Norma Shearer. I would like to see more of her work. There are actresses where I haven't seen a lot of their work, like Greta Garbo, Olivia de Havilland, or Joan Fontaine. I just haven't seen a lot of their films. Ingrid Bergman is another favorite of mine. I really, Ingrid Bergman's probably in my top three or top five. It's hard to choose, but Joan Crawford. In my Mildred Pierce episode, I talk about this, but I just am going to try to summarize it and compress it right now in this episode. What draws me so much to Joan Crawford is the way she has this tough and powerful exterior, but then she has a fragile, vulnerable interior. And she conveys both of those things at the same time. And it's I think she shows it in Mildred Pierce, but I think it's on uh, display even more in Humoresque because she is very powerful. She's very strong at times and tough in Humoresque, right? She's this older woman. He's younger. She keeps it together and she is tough in some of the scenes with John Garfield, right? But she is also a mess. She is a messy woman and I love a messy woman. I am a messy woman. I am a complicated, flawed, messed up woman. I'm traumatized. (laughs) I'm emotional. I'm not even into astrology, but I'm a cancer. In the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFP. And in the Enneagram, I'm a four. So let's put all that together in one person, and that's me. I'm very emotional. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm raw. I'm vulnerable. I'm emotional. Any listener of the podcast who's listened to only one episode will know that. I've cried in episodes. Everything is emotional for me. Everything is intense. (laughs) I feel deeply. So I'm a mess. I, I do not have my life together. I don't even have myself together, and I'm open about that. I'm drawn to women like Helen. Wright in this film, Helen Wright played by Joan Crawford, I am drawn to women like this. Like women who are barely containing all of the emotion that is like raging inside of them. Women who are fragile, women who struggle, women who can't cope with life. (laughs) I'm there. Like I am that woman. And so in this film, I see myself in Joan Crawford's character. I see all of it the desire, the rawness, the vulnerability, the fear, even the addictive personality. I have a very addictive personality and I will often turn to things to comfort me or soothe me because I can't deal with my emotions and all of my feelings. And I just can't, I just can't like deal with life at this point. (laughs) So I even have the addictive personality That Joan Crawford displays in this film. So this is my favorite Joan Crawford performance and I think it exemplifies everything that she brings to the screen. It's that fragility but also that toughness. You get the sense with Joan Crawford in a lot of her roles that she could fall to pieces at any moment. But at the same time, she can be incredibly ferocious. Think about the scene in this film where she throws the glass. I also, something I love about that she conveys is how she like hates, in a way she hates Paul. Paul Bore, right? She hates this man in a way, but she could also devour him at any moment. There's something about the way Joan Crawford is able to act in films where she conveys all these contradictions in one woman, where she looks at a man- like she could kill him and then she also looks at him like she could devour him at the same moment and she conveys all of that and that's the pain of desire. This is a film about tortured desire and that's why the film just wrecks me. Another film I think that really gets at sort of the darker side of desire or the pain that can come with loving somebody who maybe wanting somebody, loving somebody more than they, love and won't you is In the Cut by Jane Campion. I, I also talk in that film about desire, how it can be dark. It can be something that torments you and it can be something that unravels you and you come undone because of it. And with Humoresque, I think that's the core of this film. I'm gonna go through and talk about a lot of the film in this episode, a lot of the different scenes that I find really powerful. But I think for me, the thread of all of it and the core and the heart of all of it is the explosive power of desire for some women. And you see that with Helen Wright. She can barely contain what she feels for Paul and it terrifies her. And I think for some of us, desire is almost destructive. It brings chaos into our lives, particularly when you're a woman who's very passionate. You're a woman who feels very deeply, and you fall in love with somebody, or you desire someone who can't give you that back in return. Now, in this film, the desire is pretty reciprocated. It is returned. Paul does love her. He tells her he loves her, but I think the the conflict between them is that he doesn't love her as much as she loves him, and she can feel that. She can feel that imbalance, that inequality. that asymmetry in the relationship, I think, that she is so obsessed and so passionate about him and he can't quite return all of that back to her and she senses that. But the tortured desire of the film, I think, is what haunts me and what resonates with me because I can relate to that in my own life. And again, if you love Humoresque, you might want to check out In the Cut. It's modern. it's, It's very different. There's really nothing in common between these two films except that they both center around a woman who is consumed by her own desires for a man. That desire can be very dark and destructive for her. I felt that within the cut and I feel that with this one and Joan Crawford conveys all of that. But I wanted to share... Something that I tweeted right after I watched this film. Like I said, it was an experience. And I feel like those of you who are listening, I feel like most of you are gonna understand what I'm saying. And I do feel like people who are fans of this film just get it. If you're a fan of this film, you just get why it's powerful. Other people may watch it and they may think it's too melodramatic or it's too over the top or this, that, or the other. And they don't... I I have a feeling this might be one of those films where... Where you either get it or you don't. I don't know if there's a middle road because it's so deeply emotional and it's so powerful that I feel like you either tap into that power or you don't. I think you either maybe, I think particularly for women who love this film, I think some of those women or many of those women probably see themselves in Joan Crawford's character, Helen Wright. I know that I did. I, I saw so much of myself. And what's interesting with Humoresque, Mildred Pierce, in 1945 was really Joan Crawford's comeback. She had had some difficult years. She left the studio MGM that she had been at for 18 years, and she ended up going to Warner Brothers. And when she went to Warner Brothers, this represented a resurgence of her career. And she was like in her 40s, and this was sort of like her middle age in a lot of ways. She started to play characters who were tortured in love who did have sort of torturous desires for men. Several of her films, she's older and she's with younger men. I mean, I would say Mildred Pierce. Monty is younger than Mildred, right? Autumn Leaves comes to mind. She plays an older woman who falls in love with a younger man who has PTSD from the Second World War. And here in Humoresque, she's an older woman. She's sort of a patron of this younger man, Paul Bure, this violinist. She played these characters for a while. So she's an older woman. She has power in terms of her financial comfort, and she's confident. She doesn't necessarily need a man. She's not dependent on men, but she desires men. She desires a relationship, and she struggles in those relationships. She struggles in the power dynamic of them, and um, you see that in Humoresque. There's a class dynamic. There's where Paul is working class, and she's rich, and um, there's an age difference. There is an imbalance in the relationship in multiple ways. She loves more. She loves him more than he loves her. There are all kinds of imbalances in the relationship, which I find really interesting. So this film was one of the films with Warner Brothers that really gave a jump start to her career for a while in the mid-1940s. So I did want to mention that. It's a powerful, powerful film. I'm so glad I'm doing an episode. As soon as I saw it, I knew. I was like, yep. I'm going to be talking about this film. I must talk about it. It was a big reason why I'd also decided to do Mildred Pierce because the way I do the podcast, I do two episodes per month and I choose two films based on a theme. There's always some kind of connection between the films, whether it's the subject or it's the director or it's an actress or actor. And so I decided I have to do a Joan Crawford month and I chose Mildred Pierce, and I chose this film, Humoresque. I'm so glad, but Humoresque was the inspiration, and watching the film for a second time for this episode, it was still just as emotional for me. So, I watched the film a few months ago, and I went on Twitter, and I had to tweet about it. I don't think a lot of people know about this film, because this tweet didn't get many likes at all. (laughs) Nobody pays attention to me on Twitter. I swear to God. I, people put up with me on there, I think. I do share screenshots and then I also just tweet like the most random stuff and I'm ridiculous. But I've kind of decided lately that I'm really tired of taking social media so seriously. Sometimes I want to have fun with it. Sometimes I want to tweet stupid things. Nobody pays attention to me and that's a good thing nobody should. (laughs) I'm nobody in the film community. I, yeah, nobody cares about me on film Twitter. I promise you that. I just tweet what I want. (laughs) Sometimes it has to do with film, sometimes it doesn't, and I don't care. I'm at the point in my life where, you know what, I'm in my early 30s. I'm tired of caring. I'm tired of caring. I'm tired of taking social media seriously. I just am. So I watched Humoresque and I tweeted this, quote, As soon as I started watching Humoresque a few nights ago, I was under its spell. I live for films with this kind of emotional power, romantic aching, and sexual tension. Joan Crawford is magnificent. If you get a chance to watch it, don't miss. <laughs> Unquote. I just had to spread the word. I had to tell everybody about this film. And I do hope that maybe my episode will inspire some of my listeners to seek the film out. Yeah, I definitely do. And then... I replied to my own tweet, I did like a thread, and I added this, quote, Dear God, I can't cope with this film. I feel Joan Crawford's torment in my bones. A woman undone by love and desire. A woman who is too much. A woman at war with her emotions, terrified of loneliness, but also terrified of losing herself in another. I may never recover, (laughs) I get a little dramatic on the bird app, don't I? (laughs) I get a little dramatic on Twitter. Yes, I do. But I had to spread the word about Joan Crawford and Humoresque. I really did. So quickly, I want to talk a little bit about the music and a little bit about John Garfield, and then I'll get to the film. So Humoresque, I don't know if a lot of people know what this is. I didn't, actually. It's a kind of music that is whimsical and light and kind of brisk. It's kind of up-tempo. So that is what a humor is. Franz Waxman was the composer and conductor of the music in this film. A really important tidbit that I think is crucial to know about this film is that when you see John Garfield playing the violin, that is not him playing the violin it's Isaac Stern it's his hands that are doing the finger work on the strings and then there was another musician who was doing the bow so John Garfield would stand with his arms behind his back they would have they would um configure this and they'd have Isaac Stern doing the finger on the strings and then another musician doing the bow on the violin. And that's how they made it look like he was really playing the violin. And to be honest with you, if nobody ever told me that, I want to say I learned that from the Turner Classic Movies introduction, whoever did the intro. I think they mentioned that, but I could be wrong. If I didn't know that, That somebody else was doing the violin for John Garfield, I would never have picked up on it or noticed. I think it's seamless. I think it's extremely well done. The music is fantastic in this film. I love it. Franz Waxman, he did a wonderful job. He also composed music for Sunset Boulevard and for the Alfred Hitchcock film, Rebecca. I love Rebecca. I love the book by Daphne du Maurier. Years ago when I was in college in the early 2010s, I read Rebecca and I still have very intense memories of reading this book. I need to go back to it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And I did end up watching the Alfred Hitchcock adaptation with Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier. And I liked it. I can't remember a ton about it. I do think they changed the ending of it, but I love Rebecca that is such a a great story It's one I think about a lot, actually. So he did the music for that, and he did the music for Sunset Boulevard, which is an excellent film by Billy Wilder. I love Sunset Boulevard. I could absolutely see myself doing an episode about it one day. I could see myself doing an episode about Rebecca, you know? I'd love to reread the book, too. The music is so crucial in the film, and it communicates so many emotions, and the film takes music from two really important operas, which are Carmen and Tristan and Isolde. And Tristan and Isolde was by Wagner. Tristan and Isolde, I think it's like a tragic love story. Some people compare it to like Romeo and Juliet a bit. It kind of mirrors the tragic love story of Paul Boret and Helen Wright, that they do not end up together and she goes into the waves, right? Um, so there's a tragic component to their love affair. Those two operas are really important in the film and the music is stunning. I think the music is beautiful and full of so much emotion and I think they used the music in just the right way and in all the scenes often the music is crescendoing, you know, it's building as the scene unfolds and it often reflects and matches the emotion usually of Helen and you can just feel it and it elevates the film, I think. Just want to touch a moment on John Garfield. I saw The Postman Always Rings twice years ago. I got into noir and I watched a bunch of noir films like Laura. I saw Double Indemnity when I was a teenager in a film appreciation class. Leave Her to Heaven. I remember watching a lot of noir films and enjoying them years ago. I always mean to go back to the noir. I do enjoy it, and I really liked The Postman Always Rings Twice. I need to revisit it. I really want to now. Now that I saw John Garfield in Humoresque again, he really is attractive. I never had a lot of feelings about John Garfield. He's not in a lot of things, obviously. He's not really. I don't even know if he's that well known now. He's. I think he's been a little bit forgotten, even though he is in... Some famous films, but when I was watching Humoresque the second time, I was like, oh my god, this man is hot! <laughs> It just started to like dawn on me and I kind of developed a John Garfield crush while I was watching him in Humoresque this time. So I listened to Karina Longworth's episode about John Garfield and it's part of a series that I think she did about the blacklist and Hollywood and the house un-American activities and all of that. So he's not really that well known now, but he was a really big star back in you know, the 30s and 40s. He was actually blacklisted in the 19 early 1950s and he died young. He was only 39 when he died in 1952. He had heart problems, heart issues that may have been exacerbated by the stress of going through the blacklisting. And the way that Karina Longworth describes him is that he was kind of like the original Marlon Brando or James Dean, like a decade before those men were even on the scene. He had a toughness, he had a vulnerability, and he was a method actor. I like Marlon Brando. Love on the waterfront. I love A Streetcar Named Desire. I need to go back to that one. Recently, it was the anniversary. I can't remember what kind of anniversary it was. It might have been like the 70th or something like that. And that rem- reminded me of how much I like A Streetcar Named Desire, like how much I think about Vivian Lee in that film. I do. I think a lot about Blanche in that film, and I think I need to go back to it at some point. I tell you, my watch list grows and grows, Not just the films that I want to watch for the first time, but the films that I want to revisit. Like, I would love to revisit The Postman Always Rings Twice. I remember liking that film and liking Lana Turner in it and John Garfield. And I love A Streetcar Named Desire with James Dean. I haven't seen a lot of his work. I've only seen Rebel Without a Cause. We watched Rebel Without a Cause in a high school film appreciation class I took as a teenager, and I remember really enjoying it and liking it. So John Garfield is really the prototype for these two actors in a lot of ways. He was a tough guy, but he also had that that vulnerability. It sounds like it was really his wife who was involved in the communist stuff and the leftist politics, and he sort of got wrapped up in that and all of that, but he did end up getting blacklisted. He did have an affair with Lana Turner when they were making The Postman Always Rings Twice, so that's interesting. Humoresque was his last film with Warner Brothers, and it was a really big hit, so all of that information is according to Karina Longworth. I don't want to go in-depth about John Garfield or anything like that, but I thought it was interesting information. Now we shall talk about the film. The film is directed by Jean Negulesco. Joan Crawford plays Helen Wright. John Garfield plays Paul Beret and Oscar Levant plays Sid Jeffers. The film's based on a story by Fanny Hurst. What's interesting about the structure of the film is that the beginning is really, we don't realize it the first time we watch, but the beginning is really the ending. That we're seeing him after he realizes or after he's found out that Helen has killed herself. Because at the beginning of the film, he's at his apartment and he is downtrodden. He's sad. He's upset. He has canceled a performance, right? We don't totally understand what has happened. But once you watch the film, you realize that what you saw at the beginning was the aftermath, of Helen's death and him processing that and sitting with that and what's happened. He's at his apartment and I really love this scene. As soon as I started watching this film the first time, this scene pulled me in and I knew that this was going to be an important film for me. I knew this was going to be powerful. I knew it was going to be emotional. I think this is a really well-written film. There are so many scenes in it that are just beautifully written. There are things that are said throughout the film that are just, they blow my mind and they articulate something that I myself have always felt. And as I'm talking about different scenes, I'll touch on the dialogue and things that are said. So he's sitting there alone and he says, quote, all my life I wanted to do the right thing, but it never worked out. I'm outside, always looking in, feeling all the time I'm far away from home and where home is, I don't know. I can't get back to the simple happy kid. I used to be, unquote. That right there, that scene is everything. Him saying that. This sense that he's always on the outside looking in. Is this a film about a love story, sort of a tortured love story? Yeah, It's about tortured desire. It's about this woman's tortured desire. But it's also a film about an artist. It's about Paul Bore, this violinist. It's about both of those things. The struggle within an artist between wanting to dedicate yourself to your art form and the thing that you love doing, your passion, and also how do you make room in your life for love and for people? What does it mean to love an artist? Because Helen loves an artist. She loves him. But she doesn't fully have him. She has to share him with the violin, with the performances, with his love, which is music. We see throughout the film the way that him being an artist marks him as different, where he doesn't fit in. A good example is when he's older and he doesn't have a job yet. He's just practicing the violin a lot and his family attacks him for that, or his father attacks him for that, that he's focusing only on the violin and he's not out earning money money and all of that stuff, but in order for you to become a better artist, particularly when it comes to something like music, you do have to practice. You do need time to do something like that, and that's why Helen's support is so crucial and important, is that she allows him to have a life where he can dedicate himself to music, and he doesn't have to work an everyday job. He can have time for the music, and that's what he needs. It's sort of like, you know, being a writer, it's very difficult to hold down a full-time job and all that and also write. Or if you want to be a painter or anything like that, it's, it takes time for you to get better. You need time to practice. But then as you get older, it becomes harder and harder because life leaks in. Life gets in the way. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're working a full-time job. There is no time to practice. His family never fully understands Paul. His parents love him, and they do facilitate him getting into the violin and all of that, but I don't think they ever fully understand him. There's, I mean, the mother is very supportive, and she does protect him, but I don't know if they ever understand him, and I think when he meets Helen, she does understand him. I think they understand each other. And that's a powerful part of their relationship is how unconditional it kind of is where she accepts fully who he is, that he is this man who is very passionate about music and he accepts her in all of her flaws and messiness, he loves her. He tells her he loves her. She just has trouble believing it. But in each other, I do think that they find they find kindred spirits. They find maybe their soulmates. You know, they understand each other and they connect, I think, in a very deep way. He is always on the outside and she understands that. I think she's also somebody who's always on the outside and I think, When they meet, it's like two outsiders meeting each other. And I I love what he says, that he doesn't know where home is. He feels like he's far from home, but he doesn't even know where home is at all anymore. I just thought that was really powerful. And this idea that he wants to get back to the child that he was, because that... That's such a big theme for me personally. I do think about my childhood a lot. I do long for my childhood. I feel like that was the time when I was happy and whole. Everything was right. My father was alive. I had what I needed and I had what I wanted. And I was thinking today, I actually wrote this down in my diary. I was thinking about how when I was a little girl, I used to play in the woods a lot. I used to love playing in the forest. And I was thinking about how that was probably... The last time that I was happy and that I was free were those times when I was playing in the woods and I was with the trees and the birds. That's where I think I did feel truly happy and truly joyful as a little girl, was when I was in the woods, when I was in the forest, running around and exploring and just feeling alive. I think I miss that. Like, I want to feel alive. And I don't know how, because so much has happened the last couple of years that have changed me, have changed me in really deep, deep ways. And I don't know if I'll ever be who I was before. I don't know. And part of my experience has been feeling desire for somebody and not feeling that it was reciprocated. And there's something deeply damaging about that. And and it's very, very painful when you feel so much for somebody or you care about somebody and it's not returned with the same intensity and the same depth. And it is... A kind of torture. It is a kind of torment, I think. That's changed me. The pandemic has changed me. My mom's uh, been struggling with her health and stuff. And that's changed me. All these things have changed me. And I feel like I've lost who I was, and I think there's a part of me that I, too, want to get back to that simple, happy kid that I used to be. I want to be who I was 20 years ago. I mean, I'm 32 right now, and I just want to be 10 again. (laughs) 10 or 11, I guess I would say, roaming around the woods and feeling some kind of freedom and wholeness. And it's interesting, I'm just realizing that Paul says that about being a simple, happy kid. And near the end of the film, Helen, she takes this sip of drink and she talks about being a little girl and not being asked to get married. So she's also going back in time when she was a little girl and longing to be that little girl again. She's longing for a time before desire. She's longing for a time before all of that starts up, right? Because there's, you know, you're a little kid and then you go through puberty and you get into your teens and stuff. And that's when all of these emotions start to form for for either the opposite sex or the same sex, right? Romantic desire, starts to form feelings start to form and desire desire erupts desire can be volcanic it can be explosive it can be violent particularly if the person you have desire for doesn't have desire for you i think it's interesting how both of these characters are trying to get back to almost like an edenic time the time the eden right? The time before the fall, before desire, before sex, before all of that stuff. And they want to get back to being children and things being simple, not having all this complication and this pain and that comes with love, that comes with romance. They're both longing for this irretrievable past, and Paul is longing for that at the beginning of this film. With that, it goes back in time to when he was a little boy. His parents own a grocery store, and it's his birthday. He sees a violin at, a grocer- at another store. His father won't buy it for him, but then his mother goes back, and she does get it for him, and she presents it to him on his birthday after he blows out. the candles and I thought that was such a moving action on her part to do that and he's so happy so happy to get that violin. And then as he grows up, he continues to play the violin, and then we see John Garfield as the character. I guess he's supposed to be in his 20s. I think Garfield looks a bit older. <laughs> I do think John Gar- John Garfield looks a bit older than I-, I think maybe the character is supposed to be, but I don't know. I think John Garfield is quite magnificent in this film. I know I talked about Joan Crawford, and the reason I chose the film is because I I wanted to talk about Joan Crawford, but they, unlike Mildred Pierce, I mean, Joan Crawford carries Mildred Pierce. She is in most of the scenes, really. She is the central character. She shares it with different people, of course, like Anne Blythe and Eve Arden and the men in the film, but it's pretty much a Joan Crawford affair. With humoresque It's more balanced. And I would say the film is just as much about Paul Bore as it is about Helen Wright, if not more about Paul Bore. And usually I don't love films about men. This is something that I talk to with a particular friend a lot. We talk about this. That we're not always compelled by films about men. And if we are gonna watch a film about a man or that stars a man, usually there has to be some kind of emotion to the film, some kind of vulnerability. And I have covered some films that are about men on the podcast, for sure. Oslo, August 31st, Wings of Desire, Umberto D. It's not something I'm against, of course, but there has to be In the performance of the actor, there has to be emotion and vulnerability for me personally. For me to watch a film that is about a man or about men, I tend to just not be drawn to those films. I tend to prefer films about women. That's just me. So John Garfield's performance in this film, I definitely agree with what Karina Longworth was saying about Marlon Brando and James Dean because that is what compels me about Marlon Brando and James Dean for sure. Yeah, they're incredibly good looking. They have almost this animal sexuality. They ooze sex on screen. I do think that Marlon Brando, in particular, in something like a streetcar named Desire, just oozes sex. (laughs) Like, he doesn't even have to try, right? He just oozes it. It's just there. And James Dean was incredibly good looking as well. But there's also something emotional about them. I mean, think of James Dean. Doesn't he like cry and rebel without a cause? Yeah, there's that scene where he's like, You're killing me. And I think he's crying. And then Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire when he's yelling Stella. That's emotional. I live for that. I live for emotion and intensity. Yes, I do. (laughs) That is me. So these are men who are incredibly sexy and attractive and tough. Like, yeah, they're muscular and very, you know strong looking physically, but then they also have this vulnerability, and I think John Garfield has that in this film. There's something, like, I didn't catch it the first time I watched Humoresque. I was like, okay, John Garfield. I was kind of indifferent to him. I think I was more focused on Joan, (laughs) to be honest, because I see so much of myself in her. The second time with John Garfield, I was like, oh my gosh. Something about his eyes... And there is a vulnerability about him for sure. It just like hit me like a ton of bricks when I was watching. I was like, this man, (laughs) this man is so sexy (laughs) and attractive. And like, I was drooling, you know, the emoji, the drooling emoji. (laughs) That was me. I was like, oh my gosh, I I need to see more John Garfield. I I need to see The Postman Always Rings Twice. But yeah, he has a charisma in this film for sure. And he's sexy and he's vulnerable. And I like it. I like John Garfield. You know what? Okay, he is reminding me a little bit of Mark Ruffalo in In the Cut. I tell you, humorous people watch In the Cut. These are very different films, but there's a tortured thing like there is in Humoresque. And there's a class thing in In the Cut where the woman in the film is, she's like a professor or a teacher. She's kind of in a different class than Mark Ruffalo's character who plays a police officer. He's more working class. And John Garfield is very working class and humoresque. Yeah, Mark, I would say Mark Ruffalo is kind of like a modern John Garfield or a modern Brando, maybe. I don't know if people would agree with me, though. But so John Garfield gives a wonderful performance in this film of being an artist, of being a musician, being passionate about something. He conveys the intensity of Paul Bure and his obsession, his obsessive desire to be a great violinist. And we see that in the early scenes in particular. I love when, okay, so we see him in an orchestra and he's walking home with Gina. Gina is his age. Gina is like kind of his first love or his first girlfriend or crush. And I love when he's talking about music to her. And you can tell that he's young and he's passionate. And he says, quote, Bach is church windows. Beethoven is a giant range of mountains. Wagner is a storm. Debussy is the wind in the trees. Unquote. I loved that. He's so passionate about music. And he says that he wants to bring the music of all these composers to life. And when I was younger, I used to like listening to classical music, but I was working class myself and I didn't have a lot of access to classical music. But I do remember we had a Dollar Tree where I lived. I grew up in the rural South. So I would go to the Dollar Tree and I don't know if anybody remembers this, but the, and at the Dollar Tree, everything's a dollar. So this would have been like the late '90s, early 2000s. I remember going to the Dollar Tree. I still remember this, y'all. I would go to the Dollar Tree, and sometimes they would have cla- they would have CDs that you could buy. They even had films. I remember they had DVDs too for a for a dollar, I think. But they had these CDs that would have classical music on them, and I remember. I remember getting some classical music from the Dollar Tree. And I would listen to it on my little boombox. I remember an opera with the song VZ d'Art." I love, I still love that. I still love that song. Beethoven, Bach. And when I was able, I would get my dad to buy me some classical music CDs. Um, When he was alive, he died when I was 16. He really loved music. He mainly loved classic rock. He had a lot of classic rock and he shared classic rock with me, like Heart and Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks and Simon and Garfunkel, James Taylor, all of that classic stuff. But he loved to go to like Circuit City and Target and Kmart (laughs) and he would buy CDs and sometimes... When I was there with him at those places, I would find these compilations of classical music. I remember getting a compilation of Bach, and I remember getting Mozart. And I remember one of those CDs from the Dollar Tree had different, I think, classical piano songs. And I remember Fur Elise by Beethoven. And that's still one of my favorite piano songs ever. I love Fur Elise. So that's how I got to listen to classical music when I was younger. I don't listen as much now. I should. I really should listen to more classical music. I made a playlist. I have a playlist of my favorites. Um, I love Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. Schumann, Schubert, All of that. Yeah, I love classical music. Debussy, for sure. It's something that I need to explore. Tchaikovsky. I definitely need to explore more classical music. This film kind of inspired me to to seek out some of the music that is in the film and to just get back to that classical music. But I used to listen to it when I was younger and that was the way that I did it. So I love how passionate Paul is about music. And Paul is like struggling He's really struggling to make it in the music world. And so you see, not the starving artist necessarily, what comes to mind is An American in Paris with Gene Kelly. I thought that was an interesting musical that's sort of about the starving painter, the starving artist. But with Humoresque, you do see the struggling artist. You see how hard it is to break into that world, to break into the classical music world, I guess. He's struggling with it and he has his friend, Sid. Sid, right Sid is the pianist and he's known Sid since he was a little boy Sid was there when he discovered the violin right at the store that day on his birthday and there's this scene between Sid and Paul where they're talking about things and Sid tells Paul it isn't what you are but what you don't become that hurts and that was so powerful to me it isn't what you are but what you don't become that hurts. That's why I talk about this film is so well written. It has these lines that cut you to the bone. Because I'm in my early 30s and when I was younger, when I was like a teenager, when I was in college, I wanted to be a writer. And my dream was always to be like a published writer, to be an author. And I haven't really applied myself. I had potential I had this potential. I always used to get compliments on my writing, but I would say that my identity as a writer, I don't feel that as much now. Like life gets in the way. It's hard to hold on to your dreams. It's hard to even find time to write in my life right now. I'm taking care of my mom. I'm working, doing chores, taking care of the house. I'm trying to survive. I deal with depression and anxiety. I'm exhausted. I don't even think about writing. I might write in my diary once in a while, but I never have applied myself when it comes to writing. I didn't work at it hard enough. I don't put the work in. You have to put the work in. You have to set aside time. You have to actually write things. And I feel like I kind of wasted my potential or I squandered my own potential. And sometimes I am haunted by not necessarily what I am, but what I didn't become. All these dreams that I had. And they're not going to come true. And I think when you get into your 30s, that's something that starts to haunt you. That's a big theme in Oslo August 31st by Joachim Trier that I have an episode about. He's a guy in his 30s. He's struggling with his life. He's struggling with addiction the way that Helen is. And he's struggling with this sense of his life is not going anywhere. That he hasn't become everything that he dreamed of becoming. And that's something that haunts me as well. So what I do love about Paul Buret though is that he wants to make his dreams come true and he works at it. But what is the cost of having your dreams come true. You do have to be obsessed. You do have to be dedicated the way that Paul is. But then that means sacrificing maybe love and being with Helen and having a relationship. You may have to give up everything for this art, and are you willing to do that, right? Are you willing to make the sacrifices in order to be the artist or the person that you want to be? Paul's hungry for success, but he doesn't know how to get it, and he wants to be more than what he is. He wants to be more. So he goes to this party that's hosted by Helen Wright, and we find out that she's a socialite. And I love this scene. This is the scene where they first meet. She's nearsighted. So she wears glasses sometimes and throughout the film she'll have the glasses on and then at times she'll take the glasses off in order to look at him to almost see him more or something. And it's just fascinating the way that they weave that into the film over and over again. But they're at this party that she's hosting and of course she's drinking. So we know from the get-go That this is a woman who drinks. She's surrounded by these younger men who are fawning over her, probably because they want her money or they want her patronage. And then there's Paul playing the violin. Helen is a married woman, as we know. And Paul starts to play, and she's listening. She's listening. At first, She's not wearing her glasses, so she can't see him yet when he starts to play the violin. But she's very intrigued by what she hears. And so she has one of the guys go get her glasses so that she can see Paul. And to me, it seemed like this was love at first listen rather than just love at first sight. Yes, Paul is good looking. Of course, John Garfield is a hottie. (laughs) He's a classic Hollywood hottie. And that's part of it absolutely, that's part of her desire, what he looks like. But I think She's also drawn to his talent. She's also drawn to the way that he plays the violin. And there's something about the way he plays that mesmerizes her. And so I see it as love at first listen as well as love at first sight. And I think that when she hears Paul and she sees Paul, she feels the lightning bolt. She feels the, just the thing that you can't even put into words when you meet certain people where you don't understand what you feel for this person and you don't know why you feel it, but it hits you like a thunderbolt and it completely can unravel you. When you feel it for somebody. And I think that's what she feels. So she starts to walk closer to him as he's playing. And she's wearing the glasses. But then when she gets close enough. She takes them off. It's like she puts them on. She takes them off. She takes a drag of her cigarette. She's watching him so intensely. I think this is such a fascinating scene. Because we so rarely see women watching men. Women gazing at at men, inspecting them, analyzing them visually. And I think there's something powerful about it, about her gaze on him. And it happens throughout the film. He's the object in a way. Instead of him staring at her, looking at her up and down and all these things that we usually see men do, it's her It's flipped and she is the one watching him, looking at him. It's her gaze. It's a female gaze that is engaged. She wants him and she's pulled to him. I mean, she can't fight it. It's irresistible the way that she's drawn to him and that is the moment of desire. That's when the desire is stirred in her and she can't control it. And it will consume her by the end of the film. I think she feels very out of control. And like I said, she's drinking already. And there's so much in that scene between them that kind of foreshadows the rest of the film. And when I was watching the scene, I was thinking about how films today don't know how to do Desire They don't know how to capture that electricity between two people or the hunger between two people, the hunger for somebody else's body, right? That is desire. And they don't know how to capture this sort of desperate search for love and connection. The last film that I saw it so powerfully captured was In the Cut by Jane Campion. Go watch in the cut. It was maligned. It was really maligned when it came out, but I think it's a wonderful film. I think it's a fascinating film that I'll probably never get out of my system (laughs) at all. What I love about Paul and Helen is that, like, from the get-go, there's a tension between them, and I guess you could say it's a sexual tension, but they kind of (laughs) fuss. They kind of, like, get on each other's nerves at first. Like, I don't think he really likes her at first. I think she is attracted to him immediately. I think she desires him quite a bit. But they spar. They spar throughout the film. Even when he loves her in return. Even when it's an actual relationship. They still spar. There's still a conflict and a tension and an animosity almost between them because... She wants more. She desires him more. He's more dedicated to the music. And he can't give her everything that she's wanting from him. And there's definitely a tension between the two of them as a result. And her drinking creates tension. I think at times she does hate him. I think at times she is angry with him because she can't possess him. She can't have him 100% because she's sharing him. With the music. She's sharing him with the violin. And he doesn't have to share her. Although I guess you could argue he shares her with the alcohol. That alcohol is like her weakness or something like that. It's something that possesses her. The way that the music possesses Paul possibly. Later on after the party, Helen and Paul meet and they have a drink. Like I said, there's a tension. I think she wants him and she desires him. And she's fighting it. And she's scared of it. I mean, she is married, but I think she's just also scared of her own desire and how powerful it is. I think for some of us, for me included, desire, when you feel something for someone, it's a scary thing for me, to be honest. It's a feeling of being out of control and it often leads to rejection for me. It's often unreciprocated, unrequited, and that brings pain. And that brings its own kind of torment. And so whenever I do feel it for somebody, it's chaotic. It's scary. I don't like it necessarily. And I don't think Helen does either. And I think in some way she's trying to fight it. And in this scene with him, he they're kind of flirting a little bit. And she says, quote, I don't know how you men get that way. Every time you meet an attractive woman, you begin to plan on how and where you can club her wings down, unquote. And Paul says something like he's different. But is he? By the end of the film, her wings are clubbed. He didn't necessarily mean to. But as soon as she fell for him... She lost something. She lost herself in him. Maybe for those of us who are, who are scared of desire, or maybe for those of us where desire is so intense, it's because we fear losing ourselves in another person. Because that's how we love. That's how we desire, is that when we feel something for somebody so intensely, we want to merge with them. We want to be part of them. We want to lose ourselves in them. Because maybe we're always trying to lose ourselves. Women like me and Helen. I think she's trying to escape something. Maybe I'm trying to escape something. Well, yeah. I have a lot of things I want to escape I want to escape my trauma and my pain and my past and everything. And I think Helen is trying to escape and she wants to, she fears losing herself in Paul because she's losing herself already in the alcohol. I do think that her drinking is probably connected to a desire to be obliterated to lose herself, to escape, to not have to feel so much. And when you get wrapped up in somebody and you lose yourself in them, maybe it makes being yourself more bearable. She does lose herself in this desire. And I think that's why she resists it for a little while. Or I think that's also why she hates him she hates the person who makes her feel this. She hates the person who unravels her. I do think at times with desire, hate and love can be mixed because you're abdicating control. You're surrendering to another person. Another person has power over you and you don't know how to get it back. Maybe you never get it back. I don't know if you ever get that control back once you lose it. Once you realize the power of desire and you realize what somebody can do to you, I don't think you're ever the same. And so I think Helen is dealing with that as well. And Helen really becomes a patron for Paul. She pays for this big recital where all kinds of people show up. He plays the humoresque music. His parents are in the audience She's in the audience, and this concert really kind of puts him on the map. He gets rave reviews. They talk about him in the papers the next morning. And there's another scene where I think he's at her home and he's playing the violin. And she's sitting on the sofa. She has a drink in her hand. And she's watching him play. In this scene, she's looking at him again. Like, I'm just fascinated in the film by the way she looks at him. The way that she stares at him. And the power, I think, that that gives her in those scenes. But at the same time, she doesn't have power. She's the one who's at his mercy because she loves more and she wants more and she feels more. And I think whenever you're the one who feels more, you're not the one with the power. (laughs) The other person has the power and there is a power imbalance and a power dynamic between the two of them. And in that scene, her desire is so palpable. It's so naked. I mean, she can barely hide it or contain it. That's what I feel in the scenes where she's looking at him and watching him. You just feel the naked, the nakedness of that desire. And it's so visceral and so palpable. The way that she looks at him. And you can tell that her lust and her desire are uncontrollable. Just explosive. Volcanic. She can't hold back. It's written all over her face. It's right there in her eyes. She cannot contain what she feels for him. At the same time where he has this power over her in terms of the desire dynamic, but she has power over him in terms of having the money and bankrolling stuff. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like feeling like he's a toy or an object. He doesn't like feeling indebted to her. So there's this interesting push and pull between them at times where the power dynamic shifts. You know, she likes him more. She desires him more. But then she also has money and she's a socialite while he's working class. So there's a class difference too between them. She has the money, the status, the connections that he doesn't have. He's a nobody. Oh, I, I love the scene where they go for a swim. Helen invites Paul for a swim. And I think this illustrates the power dynamic as well. When they get out of the water... He tries to help her up she's on the ground or some doing something and he tries to help her up and she isn't having it she runs away and later he asks her about it and she says that she doesn't need any help she can take care of herself she has pride i think both of these people have pride right he has pride she has pride and so he leans over her while she's sitting in a chair and he says quote you want people to think you're brittle and shallow the woman with a gay gag a wisecrack You're not really that, you know. You're lonely. You think you can fool me? We're two alike. I know you too well, unquote. And she says, you don't know me at all. I love this scene where he's saying, I know you too well were alike, and he sees through that tough exterior. Again, this is what Joan Crawford did so well. She had that toughness, and then she had that fragility. And he sees through that brittle, tough exterior, and he sees who she really is. He sees her. He understands her. I think that also scares her. Not just the desire that she feels for him, but something deeper, Of somebody, somebody peeling back her defenses. Somebody penetrating to the heart of who she is. Somebody seeing her. Somebody breaking through her walls. I do think there are people who have got the biggest, thickest walls on earth around themselves. I've encountered these people. (laughs) I don't have enough walls, probably. I really think I need more walls. (laughs) I need to build more walls. I think sometimes I'm too open. I'm too available or something and I don't protect myself enough. But then I think you can go to an extreme and there are people who have like the Great Wall of China around them. Tori Amos actually has a song called China on her album Little Earthquakes. Any of you will know, I love Tori Amos. She's my number one, my goddess. And she has this great song called China. And it's about somebody who has like the great wall of China all around their heart (laughs) and around themselves. There are people who have the thickest, walls, and you could take a jackhammer to it and do everything you can to reach that person, to connect to that person, to care about them, to offer support to them, you are never, ever gonna break through those walls. And it makes me sad for people like that, who are just not open. On the one hand, I understand When you've been hurt a lot in life, when people have abandoned you, when people have harmed you, when you've had your heart broken over and over and over again, I get it. I really do get it. But it does make me sad. There are people who just can't, they can't make a little place for you to get through that wall and let you through to help them or to connect to them. And Helen is like that at times. She has a lot of walls. And I think she's really scared of the way that he breaks through them. And he sees her. He understands her. I don't know if she was prepared for that. I think that affects her as well. And I think this film really gets at the terrifying vulnerability of love and desire. The fear of being left and abandoned. The frightening process of opening yourself up to another person. Surrendering to them when you know that they could reject you. They could stop loving you at any moment. That is the, that's the terror of like romantic love is that it can end. And it can go away. It's not necessarily always unconditional. And it can be fleeting or it can be fragile. And I think desire is always torturous when one person feels more than the other. And I do think Helen's desire is stronger than Paul's and she knows it. I think she's scared of what she feels. I don't think she's ever secure with him. Because she's never sure that he feels as deeply or intensely. She's always doubting him. She's always doubting that he really loves her. And she has these walls up and he breaks through them. And that scene in particular, where he's like, I know who you really are. You're pretending to be this person and this is not who you are. I think people who have those walls up get very, very scared when somebody is approaching. <laughs> When somebody gets through some of that and tries to reach them and tries to connect to them, I think it can be scary for those people. And I understand. I understand why it's scary. And I get it. Paul and Helen go horseback riding. And she falls off the horse. And he goes to help her. And that's when she she tells him to leave her alone. But that's also when they kiss. And there's so much pain and torment in her eyes. She is fighting these feelings. She doesn't want to love him. She really doesn't want to. She doesn't want to lose herself in this passion. Because I think she knows that it will unravel her. It fades or there's like a dissolve to these ocean waves, and I felt like it was heavily implied that they did have sex, and they're lying in the grass together. I like this scene. It's post-coital, I guess you could say. It's like post-sex. She tells him he'll be sorry love was invented because she isn't an easy person. She talks about her flaws, and she says she doesn't keep her faults hidden. She wears them like medals. She's a very wounded woman, Helen. And I get that too. She says that ever since she can remember, she's been a wall to herself. And with Helen, people have really put up with her. You know, people have not tried to defy her or break through those walls. But Paul doesn't really put up with her her crap, I guess you could say, like he meets her where she is and he will spar with her and he will argue with her and he will, he will test her and challenge her. And there's something fascinating about the relationship in that way as well. And she says, quote, it takes a great deal of courage to look at ourselves as we really are, unquote. But she says that she doesn't want to look at herself and that's why she drinks. I think that's interesting. It takes courage to look at ourselves as we really are. Just sit with that. There are so many moments in this film that made me go, what? You know, it's not what we are. It's what we don't become. It takes courage to look at ourselves. Like all kinds of lines in this film that will stay with me. He wants to get back to the happy kid he was. He can't find home. The writing is exquisite to me and so emotional. If you love this film, I think some of what they're talking about will resonate with you. I know it all resonates with me, for sure. I think Helen drinks for a lot of different reasons. I think to escape, to numb herself, to numb her feelings, to fill some kind of void, to avoid herself and the shame that she feels. We don't know her backstory. We don't know everything she's been through or what's happened to her, but there is something there under the surface. And I think Paul touches her, stirs something in her. She tells him that she loves him. It's the scene where she, she surrenders finally. She surrenders to those feelings and she admits that she loves him. His star starts to rise. Later on, they're at this bar talking and they've had this big blow up. I think this is after he, he meets with Gina his old girlfriend or his old crush or whatever at a restaurant and Helen see Helen shows up and she sees Gina there and she walks out of the restaurant because she's very jealous she's very upset about it and later on her and Paul are talking she she doesn't like things that have been happening. He's been on tour. He hasn't contacted her because he's become more successful. Already we see cracks in this relationship that she's having to share him with the road, with music, with his career. He says something like he was thinking about them. He was thinking about their relationship and she doesn't believe him. And he says that he doesn't care what she believes. And at that moment, she says that she wants to slap his face and he tells her to try it. This is what I'm talking about. Like, he will spar with her. He will not bow down to her. (laughs) And she throws her glass, her like champagne glass, against the wall. This scene, there are fireworks between these two. This is the kind of relationship that I live for in movies. I love tormented love. I love tortured love. I love relationships where two people are very passionate and they're passionate. And I don't mean in a toxic way. I don't mean like they're violent with each other. I mean that they feel a lot for each other. There's a lot of desire. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of passion. I live for it. I need my intensity when I'm watching my movies and my love stories. I love it. Oh god. I'm sick. But This moment in the film is like, oh my God. And she throws the glass against the wall. It's so intense. And I just, I love love stories like this, y'all. I love a tragic love story, a tormented love. Where two people, like you can't live with each other, you can't live without each other, that type of thing. I don't know why. They do make up after that. But throughout the film, that's what their relationship is. This is probably why I love the film, is that they spar They argue, they fight, they yell at each other, but then they make up, right? Like they do make up, but their emotions are always on the surface and it is a tumultuous relationship. It makes for a good movie. I wouldn't want to have that in real life. (laughs) I know in real life that would be way too dramatic and annoying to have to deal with a relationship that tumultuous, but in a movie, it's fun and it's interesting and it's passionate. I can't get over this one scene where he's at a concert and she's in the audience and she's watching him again. She's always watching him. Her gaze is always on him and she's sort of suggestively holding the program in her hands. like It looks kind of phallic and he's looking up at her while he performs and he looks so hot. John Garfield, I tell you, there are moments in this film where I was drooling, as I said, and my crush was intense as I was looking at him. I liked looking at him. I was gazing at him. I would have been in that audience staring at him too. And as he's playing, there is this extreme close-up of Helen's face and she seems to be in the throes of ecstasy as she listens. It seems orgasmic almost, as she is watching him play. I have not really seen something like this in a film, particularly a film from 1946. It was extremely sexually suggestive, and she really looked like she was in the throes of ecstasy to me. I was kind of reminded of this quote by Susan Sontag. I'm reading her diaries again. Um, The first volume is called Reborn. I read them when I was like in my early 20s, I read this first volume, Reborn, and I'm rereading it now. And I came across this interesting quote that she has about music. And I think this film, as much as it's about love and all of these things I've talked about, it's also about music. It's about the power of music, the beauty of music, the way music affects us. I do think partly why she falls in love with him is not just his looks, of course that doesn't hurt, and that is a big part of it, but the way he plays she gets turned on, not just by his looks, but by his talent, by the way that he plays the violin. And this scene kind of brought that home for me, brought home the pleasure of music. I mean, obviously the scene is sexual, very suggestive, I thought, but I do think that music We can have very strong reactions when we are listening to music. I know that I have like a very intense relationship with music. I listen to music constantly almost, particularly once the pandemic started. I got really into music and I will listen for hours a day to all kinds of stuff. I'm just always listening to music. I love to listen to my favorites, and I also love to discover new music, new types of music, new genres and uh, artists. I love to discover as well. But music is therapeutic for me. Music's comforting. It's cathartic. And there is an ecstasy about music at times. I think when you find a great song and you get obsessed with it, I'm the kind of person I can listen to the same song for hours, even Days. I went through a really intense period earlier in 2021 where I was listening to Portis Head. I remember just laying in bed and I had Portis Head on repeat for hours and hours. I don't know what happened to me. I got in the throes. I'll listen to Elliot Smith on repeat. I'll listen to Tori Amos for hours or days. And I will get different songs just stuck in my head for hours and hours and hours. And there is something Pleasurable about it, it takes over your body, and so there's this quote by Susan Sontag in her diaries, and um, it's like from 1948 actually, and she says, "quote, music is at once the most wonderful, the most alive of all the arts. It is the most abstract, the most perfect, the most pure, and the most sensual." I listen with my body and it is my body that aches in response to the passion and pathos embodied in this music. It is the physical eye that feels an unbearable pain and then a dull fretfulness when the whole world of melody suddenly glistens and comes cascading down in the second part of the first movement. It is flesh and bone that dies a little each time I am sucked into the yearning of the second movement. Unquote. And she writes down throughout her diaries all her favorite music, and usually classical. She mentions a lot of different classical music in her diary, and I've been noting all the parts where she mentions different classical music, and I plan on making a playlist. Like on Spotify. I use Spotify. And I thought as, you know, as I'm marking all this stuff, I thought it would be kind of fun to make a playlist of all the songs that she mentions in her diaries. So I'm probably gonna do that. But I love how that quote gets at the way that music can seize our bodies. It's a sensual experience. It's something that takes us over physically. That's how music is for me personally. It can take me over and I love it. I love when I get possessed <laughs> by a song or a certain musician or an album. I love that feeling when you just get possessed by by a song or some and it just takes you over. I love it. It can it can intensify life, I think when you get really into a particular kind of song or album, she is able to get the divorce from her husband. He says that he will grant it to her, but he does warn her that he doesn't think that the relationship between her and Paul will work out. He tells her that Paul's music always comes first and always will, but she doesn't feel love in her marriage. You can tell it in the scenes between them. He's polite and he's nice, but there's no real spark or connection between the two of them. And I do think that that's what she feels with Paul, or I think she feels something more powerful with him. And I think what it is, is that she feels understood and she feels accepted. And that can be incredibly powerful. That can be a very intense feeling when you feel understood by somebody. And I think that's what she finds in Paul. But even after she meets Paul, she doesn't stop drinking. There's still something in her that is aching, that is empty. I think she's searching for something and I'm not sure she knows how to find it. And she never really trusts Paul. She never really believes that he loves her. And that keeps her trapped, I think. But keeps her uncertain. The big scene of the film is when she she knows that she's going to be able to get the divorce. And so she rushes to Paul's rehearsal. And she has a man give a note to Paul. And she goes and sits in the audience during this rehearsal. And Paul doesn't know that she's there watching. Again, she's watching him. And she has a note sent to him that she has exciting news. And she wants to meet with him immediately. And the man gives Paul the letter or the note, and Paul just crumples it in his hand, puts it in his pocket, and he continues with the rehearsal. And she sees all of this, and I think it's a confirmation to her that she can't compete with that violin. She can't compete with music. She says something like, she's tired of being second fiddle. I think she says that at some point in the film. And it confirms her worst fears that their passion is not equal, that their love is not equal, that she loves him more, that she desires him more and wants him more. That breaks her heart, I think. She feels broken by that. I really do. She's tortured. She's tortured by the love that she feels for him because... She knows he can't match it and that what he loves more is music. The intensity isn't the same. And I do think her desire frightens her. I think what she wants frightens her and how much she wants. She wants so much. Just like Paul wanted to be more than he was before he became a really successful violinist. I think she wants to be, I think she wants to be different or something. A different kind of woman. And she, she can't be and maybe that's why she drinks. She is too much. She's more than even she herself can handle. She really spills over. She's, her lust is uncontrollable, and she spills out of the bounds. She's not what a woman should be. A woman shouldn't be like her. A woman shouldn't be out of control, right? We're not supposed to be out of control. We get, um, sanctioned for it and punished she wants this man violently like violently and he has this power over her and you see her at the bar drinking and crying and that's when paul finds her there later she's just drinking and crying and she can't handle what she feels for him and she tells him he's a hangman's noose her. I thought that was such a powerful statement that he is a hangman's noose. You know, that's not really what love is supposed to be, right? Like love is supposed to be, you know, when you love somebody and it's supposed to be this beautiful thing. This is, we love love. (laughs) Everybody wants to be loved. You don't describe somebody as a hangman's noose, But that's how she feels about love. That's how she feels about her desire, is that she loves him so much that it brings pain to her. She knows that he doesn't love her as much as she loves him. And that's, I think, what breaks her heart. And I think that's what tears her apart, is that she cannot be loved the way that she wants to be loved, which is total and complete and unconditional, obsessive. I think maybe she wants his love to be as obsessive and powerful and overwhelming as hers is. She wants him to be as undone by her as she is by him. She's a mess over him. He's not a mess over her. He goes on, you know, he does his tour, he plays, he does all this stuff, he lives his life without her on tour, because he has his music and everything, and she's the one unraveling, she's the one coming undone, because she's so obsessed with him, and she wants him and desires him so much, and her feelings are so volcanic and explosive She can't even contain them. She's probably also drinking to numb herself. He's a hangman's noose. I mean, that's one way to put it. (laughs) That's one way to put like when you really desire somebody that badly and they don't return it the way that you want them to. That's one way to put it. She also says she's a lost cause in that conversation. They go back to his apartment and that's when she tells him that her husband's gonna give her the divorce. Paul does say that he loves her. He tells her throughout the film that he loves her, that he wants to marry her, but she doesn't believe him. She doesn't think he wants her. She thinks he wants a made-up version of her. She thinks he'd rather have a homemaker, somebody like Gina, and she tells him she won't change. And he says that he's not asking her to. He says it over and over. I think at one point in the film, he says, how many times do I have to say it? You know, I love you. I want to marry you. I want to be with you. He is is giving her that love. He is confirming and assuring her that I love you. I care about you. I want to marry you. And it's like, even when he says it, she doesn't feel it or something. Or she doesn't believe it. I don't think she believes that he loves her. And I do think maybe in the back of her mind, she's always scared of being rejected and abandoned. I think she probably has been rejected and abandoned a lot in her life. And so she's just not able to believe him when he says all these things. I think in her mind, she believes he's going to be like every other man that she's known and that he will leave her. And he will get tired of her or she will be too much because I wouldn't be surprised if in the past, she's been too much for other men. And they did leave her once she wanted too much or asked too much of them or came off excessive or obsessive or needy. I mean, that's something that I think women struggle with. We get scared of being seen that way, as being seen as needy, as being seen as too clingy, of wanting too much. And I think it's something we worry about. And being needy is often attached to women. It's often attached to us when we want a deep uh, relationship with a man, usually. We're accused of being needy or being clingy. Maybe some of us are. Maybe I am needy. Maybe I am clingy. Maybe I am excessive. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I am. I'm Helen though. I mean, I I understand this woman so well. I understand the desire. I understand the way that it can unravel you and you can come undone when you desire somebody so much and it can be incredibly painful, incredibly destabilizing, shattering. I think there are certain kinds of experiences of desire that are just shattering you are never the same you'll never be who you were before it she tells him he's already married to his work and to his music i think she loves him so much it hurts it hurts her i think she wants him so much it hurts i think you can want somebody so much that it hurts and no matter how much of them you get it's never enough And it will never be enough. And I think that's Helen. And I think that's partly what tortures her. Is that she has him. Oh, God, that's what gets me. She has him. He's not cheating on her. He wants to marry her. He says he loves her. She has him. But she's so scared. She's so... She wants all of him, though. That's the thing, too, is, like, she wants all of him. And she cannot have all of him. Because... His work comes first. His music comes first. The violin. She knows she's sharing him with that violin. And she knows that she can't have all of him that she wants. I think that's also what bothers her as well. She has him, but it's not enough. I don't think it's ever enough for Helen. She has this great life. She has money, status, connections. She has all kinds of things. She's an embarrassment of riches in life and she drinks herself almost to death. It's never enough. There's some void inside her that she just keeps throwing and throwing stuff into, and I get that, too. I told you I'm an addictive- I have an addictive personality, and there's absolutely a terrible black hole inside of me. I struggle with self-hatred. I struggle with low self-esteem, a lack of confidence. I think what haunts me is that I don't feel like I've ever truly been loved. I was loved by my parents- my dad and my mom love me. I'm just haunted by how few people have actually loved me in my life outside of my parents. And I've never understood why. Because at times, I really do feel lovable. At times, I feel like I am a good person. I am kind. I am compassionate. I'm empathetic. I'm smart. I'm... I don't know if I'm funny. Some people think I'm funny. Some people will laugh at my crummy jokes, and some people will not. I don't know if I'm funny, but I'm compassionate, and I care, and I feel like I'm giving. I feel like I am worthy of love at times, you know? I feel like, how could somebody not love me, but... I've had such a lack of love in my life. And I think maybe that's where the black hole comes from as well. And maybe it's the same with Helen. Maybe she just hasn't gotten the love that she needs. And I think a lot of us don't get the love we need. And it's so damaging. I've said this before, but when it comes to love, it's life and death. When we are not loved, when we don't feel loved, and we don't feel that connection, that affects every part of our lives. It really does. I also think Helen is a woman who hates herself. Deep down, I think that's why she drinks. And that's why she doesn't believe Paul loves her. She doesn't believe anyone can love her. She thinks she's a burden. She's ashamed of who she is. She wants him, but she feels like she's bad for him. And like she'll only bring him pain and ruin. I don't think she believes that she deserves love. And we don't exactly know why. I mean, she mentions... She has all these faults, right? All these flaws and she's messy and all these things, right? But we don't know why she feels the way she does about herself. I think she hates herself and I think she sees herself as a burden. And I think that could be why she kills herself at the end. Because remember, she also goes to visit his mother. And the mother is like, leave him alone. You're going to mess with him. Even when she's on the phone with Paul, this is the final scene and I want to talk in depth about it right now. She calls him and he's like, where have you been? Why are you making me worry about you? I have to do this concert. Do you think I want to sit here worrying about you? And again, that's another that reinforces to her that she's a burden, that she's a problem, that she causes issues, that he would be better off without her. I think that's part of it. And I think she's in so much pain. And I think she wants the pain to end too. And I think when you're in the throes of that kind of pain, it can be very hard to see beyond it. Because it's a very specific pain and it can feel like you're being torn apart inside and you can feel this terrible emptiness that is overwhelming and that blots everything else out. It's very scary. It's a very dark feeling, I think, what she feels for him and how out of control she feels in it, in that desire. It's a dark place. I think you can go to a dark place sometimes with it. But when he snaps at her and says all of that, it confirms for her like, oh, I'm a burden. I'm a problem. I'm causing issues for him. He'd be better off without me. He doesn't really love me. And she's been drinking. So she's not totally in her right mind either. But this final part of the film, this final scene where she goes out to the beach and all this. I guess it's not technically the final scene. That would be when Paul goes on the beach and stuff. But it's one of the final parts of the film. It's just magnificent. And this is the reason that I watched the film. I think I saw images of her walking on the beach like this. And it just absolutely knocked me out. It's so deeply emotional. There's something about the way she's talking to him on the phone. She's wearing this black sparkling gown. She's looking out the window at the sea. It's, oh God. And she talks about how she wishes they could be out on the water together, away from everything. And every time she cries, every time like she's overcome with emotion, she covers up the the phone receiver like the the second half of the phone so that she's talking into so that he won't hear that he won't hear that she's crying and he has to do the concert and he has to leave he doesn't have time to talk to her he's off with his music and after he hangs up that's when she says i love you and then she starts crying the music is swelling i mean this this whole scene is nuts The music is like building and building and then she's crying and then the radio comes on. She has the radio on and the concert that he is playing starts and you can hear it over the radio and in this scene, he's playing the music from Tristan and he's old. She pours a glass of alcohol and she says, quote, here's to love and here's to the time when we were little girls. No one asks to marry. Unquote. And I found this line so interesting. I'm still thinking about it. Like I said, it mirrors what Paul was saying at the beginning of the film about being a little boy, getting back to childhood, the simplicity of childhood. And she wants the same thing, to go back to childhood, to go back to being a little girl before she had to worry about this. We take our parents' love for granted. I mean, most of us do feel loved by our parents, or a lot of us do. And that love is deep, and that love is unconditional. Romantic love is very different. Romantic love can be much more fraught, and it's not always unconditional. It depends on who you meet, who you get with, right? But a lot of people don't just date one person for the rest of their lives. A lot of people date multiple people and fall in love with multiple people. There's something more inconsistent, unsteady about romantic love. It's less rational. It's less predictable. It's less reliable. It's based on things that are often outside of our control, like who we're attracted to, and we don't always know why we're attracted to somebody. We can feel that attraction and desire, and then we can stop feeling it, and then the relationship ends. Romantic love is not as unconditional. Whereas the love that I think a lot of us receive as children, that's more unconditional. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do anything for it. We just receive it. Life is simpler when you're a child. It's simpler before romantic stuff, right? And the pain of that. And the pain of desiring somebody. And being heartbroken by another person. Because as soon as romantic love enters our lives... The possibility of heartache also enters our lives. That somebody will hurt us. It's the beginning of hurt as well. I can see why she wants to go back to that time. And I just connect so deeply to Helen. It's a very rare experience for me to connect so deeply with a character, but I do. I understand everything that she feels for Paul. I understand it. Not everybody has felt that. Some of us have felt it. We have felt a desire that was violent, a desire that unraveled us, a desire that we didn't know if we would survive it. It was so powerful. And if you've ever felt it, It's incredibly painful. It's incredibly agonizing, particularly when it's not reciprocated by the other person. And it can make you feel unstable. It can make you feel unwell as a person. And it can make you question things and question your very sanity question your very survival, to feel so powerfully for another person, and to not know what to do with those emotions. And she's tortured by it. And I get her. I understand it. And I think Joan Crawford brought that to life for me. And so she starts walking down the beach. She, I thought it was very interesting. She picks up this flyer of Paul, like his face is on it, and she's walking with it. I mean, this scene is so magnificent and heartbreaking and emotional she's just walking along the beach in her black sparkling evening gown in the moonlight by the ocean waves you know just give me a glamorous woman crying and walking on the beach and i'm good this is what my cinematic dreams are made of i couldn't even handle all the emotion of this scene the music is swelling the waves are crashing the tears are flowing (laughs) I live for this. (laughs) I live for this kind of emotion. And she stands there by the water. The picture of Paul slips from her hands. And the waves come at her. The waves claim her. She's almost like Ophelia. The waves take her. The water takes her. And we get this extreme close-up of Joan Crawford's tear-stained face. I mean, it just gets closer and closer to her face. And then she's gone. She has surrendered to the waves and killed herself. God, when I was watching this scene, I moaned. I was moaning. All I was doing was making sounds. I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I didn't even have language for my emotion that I was feeling. This is poetic fucking cinema. <laughs> Forget that meme. Forget the meme of Tarkovsky, right? There's this meme of like Tarkovsky with his like hand to his forehead and then underneath it says poetic cinema. No. No. This scene in Humoresque. This is poetic fucking cinema. I don't care what anybody says. This is the definition of poetic cinema. Joan Crawford in her glittering evening gown Under the moonlight, by the waves, going into the ocean. This is poetic cinema. You know what occurred to me after I saw this? Yeah, and I'm just like moaning as I watch. (laughs) But no, this is what occurred to me. Like women like Helen cannot survive the world. We really are too sensitive and we feel too much and no one can handle it, not even us. And I think we're doomed in a way. I mean, I don't love to think of myself in that way. We're not doomed. Maybe we just feel doomed, right? But it's like everything we want is beyond our grasp and we just keep aching and aching and aching for all that we can't have. The, the world is not kind to women like me and Helen. And neither are men. <laughs> I think we're scary. I think we're very scary to men. Those of us who just feel very deeply and are very passionate women. So um, at the end of the film, it's interesting that it doesn't end there. Like, it could have ended there. Did we really need to continue the film? Not really. It could have totally ended in that moment, but it does not. Paul, we see Paul go down to the beach and later on when he's back at his apartment, he talks about how nothing comes free. Eventually you pay for what you are. I think that's interesting. You know, both he and Helen were passionate and they were obsessive, really. They were alike. They were two of a kind. I think they were soulmates in a way but I don't know if they really could have stayed together because they were so similar, maybe. His obsession was music. Her obsession was him. Her obsession was her longing and her desire for him. Of course, Paul goes on. Paul will keep living. He'll keep playing. But women like Helen kill themselves over men like him. He'll move on. He'll find someone else. He'll get married. And maybe that was her fear all along, That love wasn't life or death to him. That she wasn't everything to him. That she wasn't his life the way that he was everything to her. That the passion was not equal. I think that was her fear. It never is equal. There's always usually someone in the relationship who loves more. Who feels more. Who wants more. And there is often that imbalance, I think, in a lot of relationships. And when it's you... When you're the one that feels more, it's terrifying. and it's destabilizing for sure. But yeah, I mean, he'll go on. He'll keep living and she killed herself. It's tragic. But she maybe was going to kill herself whether she met him or not. She had been drinking pretty intensely for a while, it seems like. And she was struggling even before she met Paul. But I do wonder if maybe Paul was her last hope. That maybe Paul made her dream again or hope again that maybe she could find love, that she could feel this void that was inside her. And she had him and he was hers and not even that was enough. And maybe nothing would have ever been enough. Even if he had given up music for her. I do think women like Helen and me, maybe nothing ever is enough for us. No matter how much we get No matter how much somebody loves us, maybe that's never enough. Because if we don't love ourselves, then no love is enough, is it? If you don't believe that you deserve love, if you don't believe that you're worthy of love, then no amount of love that anybody gives you will ever be enough. You will not know how to receive it. You will not know what to do with it because you don't feel that you can be loved or that you're deserving of it. And I do think that she deeply hated herself. And I think she was deeply ashamed about something. There's mystery about her as well. We don't know the origin of all this. We don't even know the origin of her drinking, like how that started. We just know that she can't look at herself. She can't accept herself. And who she is and what she's done and everything she feels. To me, that's very powerful. And I feel a lot of that within myself. And I think that's why I loved Helen so much. And I related to her so much. (sighs) I am an excessive woman. (laughs) I feel too much. It's painful. It's really agonizing and excruciating at times to feel so much. I have talked enough about this film. There was so much to say. I mean, what do you even do? But yeah, this is an amazing film and so glad I talked about it. Hope my discussion was valuable and I'll stop here. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Paulina, Stephen, Peter, Spunden, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Olivia, Jesse, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.